Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host with Dr. Kenneth Howell, and uh, it's a pleasure to join you today. Thank you. I hope that you enjoy this program. Uh, again, let me remind you, deepinscripture.com is the website where you can hear all the archived programs, get the working notes. We've, we've hoped that we've encouraged a few of you to get courageous enough to start a Bible study in your local parish, and we hope that these programs are uh, uh, a background for you, a formation uh, to help you prepare for that. And if any of you have questions about doing that, please feel free to email us, because that's the goal, is to encourage local scripture studies uh, more. It's happening, of course, all over in uh, uh, amongst all of our separate brethren, especially if uh, many scripture studies, we just need to have a few more in the, in the Catholic Church. I'd love to see happening at a local level. That's what we want to help. Today we're going to continue our study with Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. And uh, we do have an email we began 1 through 8 last week. We only got through first verses, and we had some detailed emails last week. But Ken, this way we just got one. And it's a good email because it gets us uh, to address a part of verse 2 that we didn't look at last week. Uh, the uh, emailer writes, uh, I didn't get his name, but uh, he writes, Dear Ken and Marcus, last week you discussed Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the emailer says, in your discussion, you didn't address what Paul meant by being able to prove what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The term prove would seem to imply that this process would help one know clearly what God's will is. Yet in my experience, I've known many, many faithful Christians, Catholic or non-Catholic, who have dedicated their lives to doing this very thing, yet they can't seem to agree on what God's will is for lots of things. What does Paul mean here? Well, thank you. I, I didn't get the name on that email, but thank you for your Question, Ken, um, first of all, talk about that word prove that Paul uses. Is it possible we're, we're um, making it uh, mean more than what Paul intended? The, the, the verse, again, for the audience mm -hmm. is, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, by pulling out that word prove, are we putting more onto it than we should? Or is the is it, in fact, calling us to a deeper understanding in our conscience of what the will of God is? Well, I think the uh, the term here that Paul uses in verse 2 for prove is is the word dokimadzin or dokimadzo in Greek. And it has a fairly wide range of meaning. It can mean to put to the test, uh, where you don't necessarily know the outcome of the test, um, or it can mean to prove in the sense that you can demonstrate what something is. It, it's used with a, a very wide range of meaning. And I guess the question here really is, um, what is he talking, what is he exhorting the Romans and us uh, to do? Uh, you notice that the way that it's translated is, is properly translated. He said, 
prove the will of God, so that you would test what the will of God is. And that's a result clause. In other words, that's the result of something else. Well, then, then of course, we've got to ask, well, what's the, what is the, the, the result of? And the answer to that, I think, is in verse 2, uh, the beginning of it, where he says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind or your mind. In other words, whatever proving the will of God means, it, it seems to be um, an integral part of the process of being transformed in the renewal of the mind. I think last week, Marcus, you may have pointed out that the idea of presenting one's body as a living sacrifice that Paul speaks of in verse 1 is fulfilled in a way by this transformation um, of the inner person, this renewal of the mind that takes place. In other words, what, what Paul seems to be saying here in the bottom line is that you really can't know the will of God in, in your life or anybody else's life without uh, this transformation of the, um, of the re- And it reminds me of Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 1, where he says that, that only the spiritual man knows the things of God because the Spirit of God has revealed them to him. And in other words, um, he actually, this is in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the fact that that the the fleshly man, what he calls the psychikos in Greek, the the man who's just on the level of his sort of his natural reason and appetites, he says in chapter two, verse fourteen of First Corinthians, the soulish or the, the 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 carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God; they are foolishness to him. So that what Paul is talking about in proving the will of God seems to be um, seems to require this transformation in the renewal of the mind. Ken, uh, wow. This is, I believe, so important. And, and it points out, uh, on the one hand, the importance of something here that we can't miss, or on the other hand, it points out why there's so much confusion amongst Christians. Um, it, first of all, as with many of Paul's letters, the second half of the letter will be, as you mentioned last week, Ken, kind of the therefore, uh, and as, as Paul begins in verse 1 of 12, I appeal to you therefore. So the second half is taking what he has said in the first half of his letter, and then now it's, okay, what difference does it make in our lives? Everything he said up to this point, what difference does it make in our lives? We see that in another letter, for example, that we'll refer to later in the program, and that's Ephesians, where Ephesians 1 through 3 is basically about how baptism brings you into the body of Christ, what difference baptism makes in your life. That's chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 is the second half, and he begins with, I therefore beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So in the second half of Ephesians, almost exact same thing. And we'll see that in chapter 4, he's going to deal with what he deals with here in Romans, the, the, the life of the body and living out your calling and your gifts. But verse 2 of Romans 12, to me, seems to be the absolute key. And that is, given all that he said, now 
we have to recognize that under the grace of God, following Jesus Christ means breaking free from this world. It means breaking free from this world and that this involves our mind and our hearts to be changed. So to be able to have our bodies, our, lo- our whole person, body and soul, be a living sacrifice in this world, in the life we live, begins by having a transformation from within, our, our heart and our mind. And Ken, I can think of lots of verses throughout the New Testament that talk about this kind of thing. But at the time of Paul, there was no New Testament collection of letters. Paul has had the infused understanding of the gift of the Spirit to help him transform his Old, he wouldn't have called it Old Testament, but his Jewish heritage, the prophecies, the law, uh, the histories, transformed through the understanding of who Jesus Christ is as a fulfillment of all that old, so that the continuity, the hermeneutic of continuity, if you will, brings us to a new way of living out in obedience to Jesus Christ, in obedience to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, as well as Peter, James, and John, are the speakers that have transformed this for us. And we see that in both the written and the oral tradition. And that's what Paul says in the beginning of First Thessalonians chapter 2, to stand firm on the traditions that you've received both orally and written. So, when, they, when Paul's writing to these young Christians to change their lives, what are, they, what are they basing that on? They're trying to figure out, well, how do I do that? How do I break free from this world? And how is my mind transformed? And the data that would have been fed, that would have fed them, was in fact the oral transmission of the teachings of Jesus Christ which then became written down in the Gospels and in the other New Testament letters. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, the different teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, how to love, sacrifice, um, you know, the idea of looking at everyone as someone for whom Christ died, looking at everyone, uh, whatever we do to anyone, we do to Jesus, all those teachings of Jesus Christ. Those are the teachings that are to transform our mind, that break us free from the world. Remember he said, I have no anxiety about anything, um, but, uh, but what, you have, what you need tomorrow, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be yours. Knock and ask and seek. All these things are how we break free from the world so that our mind is transformed. Now the problem is that already as these teachings of our Lord Jesus are being proclaimed in the Mediterranean to these new Jewish and Gentile Christians as they're trying to transform their lives, live it out, there's problems. And so you end up seeing that every New Testament writer is addressing the problems of how you take the teachings of our Lord Jesus through his apostles and apply it into real life situations as the gospel spreads out through the world. And almost every New Testament writer deals with this. And one quick example is 1 John chapter 4, 
where John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The world he the word that John uses in that verse is the very one that Paul uses here to prove what is the will of God. He uses to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. You see, the problem is that you have already, very quickly, we see in the beginning of Galatians, reference to already, there are people who are taking it upon themselves to interpret the words of our Lord Jesus to come up with new spins on the gospel. It happened in Galatia, it happened in Ephesus, and the other areas where where John is writing to, it's happened uh, here in Romans. And so the question is, how am I to know if the way that I am breaking free from the world and transforming my mind is correct or not, whether in fact what I'm learning is the will of God is true or not, whether my sacrifice of my life is holy and acceptable. And the subtle message there is the very fact that we're listening to Paul, that we're listening to John, that we're listening to James and Peter. The point is that we have to listen to the church. That's how we know whether the way we're renewing our mind is accurate or not, whether it's in line with the teaching of Christ, whether it's in line with the tradition that was passed on from Jesus to the apostles and on and on to these churches. That's how we'll know whether what we're sensing in our conscience is in fact the will of God, it's good or perfect, because we've got to make sure that what we're interpreting is in line with the teaching of the church. Well, I, I think that's um, actually exactly parallel to what Paul was doing here. In other words, Paul had in had in front of him the Old Testament, <clears throat> whether in Hebrew or in in the Greek translation, um, and he knew uh, much of it in my heart, uh, undoubtedly. Um, and what is he doing? Well, as an authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ, he's now applying that Old Testament text. But he himself stands as a official interpreter of that Old Testament text. That's exactly what the magisterium of the church is called to do today. The bishops of the church in union with the the Pope, the Holy Father, they are called to apply Scripture to our situations and life today and to, and to call us to this obedience to Christ and this transformation that goes on within us. Now, in that regard, just like in Paul's day, so today, the term will of God that's in verse 2 you know, could be understood in two ways. The way we often understand it, we, we implicitly uh, adopt the meaning of the will of God is that what he, is what he wants for my life in the future, you perhaps you remember it, especially when we were younger and we were trying to find out what God wanted us to do. You know, we would pray, God, please help us to know your will. And by the way, that's a very good prayer. Yeah. Uh, God <laughs> right. will always hear that prayer in some way or another. Now, the answer may not be one that we think that we should have received, but he will always hear that prayer because he does want to reveal his will to us. So there's that sense of the will of God, but there's also the sense that I think is even closer 
to what you're saying, Marcus, and that is Paul goes on to amplify what the will of God is when he speaks of the good, the pleasing, and the perfect. In other words, it's that which is good, inherently good, that which pleases God, and that which brings about the perfection of our souls in in grace. So that what, what Paul is saying here is that, and that that will of God is the will of God we know through Scripture and the tradition that's been passed down through the church. It's exactly the same situation that Paul was in as he becomes the official interpreter of Christ's will in the lives of the Romans. So, in the same way, uh, the, the Holy Father, the, the bishops of the church, the spiritual guides of the church, they give us guidance in what that in finding well what that will of God is. But it's not as if we have to go searching every moment of our lives to find out what the will of God is. We know that which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is perfect. And so, for example, we know when Scripture says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, that that applies to the child in the womb. When it says, for example, that that the two shall, the husband shall leave his his father and his mother become one with his wife. We know that the good of a true marriage is a man and a woman united together for life. And that's why marriage has to be indissoluble. Um, so it's not as if everything is open to question. No, we, we have the content of the faith to guide us as we look also for that particular path of, of the will of God that we don't quite know what it is yet in our lives. Ken, um, I'm pulling a blank here on something. In verse 2 in the Greek, right after the word dokimatsen mm-hmm. is the word humas. Yeah, humas. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that plural, you? Yes, yes, it is. I think that's key. In other words, when he's saying that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. He's not mm-hmm. emphasizing this individualistic, you know, it's me. I've got to determine what, what God wants for me in my life, you know, uh, that's so rampant in America. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christians together. And that we, of course, individually are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds um, so that we break free from the 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 false values of the world. But again, he's using the plural you to emphasize that we, as he'll get to, with their individually members of one another, he'll say in verse five. And to be always careful of this, the devil's whisper to think it's all about me, is that it's all about Mm -hmm. us individually as a part of the family. It's always been that from the beginning. Well, as I've been reading uh, and translating uh, the treatises of uh, St. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, the bishop of uh, in North Africa in the middle of the 3rd century, he has a wonderful commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things he says at the very beginning, he asks us to note carefully that the words of the prayer are, Our Father, not my Father. Now, of course, God is my Father. But what he's saying is that this prayer is the prayer that that calls us together. It's the prayer that together in the body of Christ, we are led back to 
the Father. And this is something that sometimes our our um, non-Catholic friends, uh, Christian friends, don't always understand about the Catholic Church. It's something I didn't understand, to be honest with you. And that is the the same, the, same, the rules that seem to be sort of um, arbitrary, like fasting on Friday, you know. Uh, or abstaining from meat during Lent and then fasting on Good Friday and and Ash Wednesday. Uh, Why do we do this? Well, we do it because we all do it together so that we can have that sense of unity within the church. And when we pray every Lord's Day, or even every day, Our Father who art in heaven, we're praying a family prayer, a communal prayer that reminds us that we cannot live as, you know, a... a lone ranger Christians, we have to live as a part of the body in some way, shape, or form. Excellent, Ken. Uh, two more things about these uh, first two verses before we will go to a break in a little while. But before we get on to the, the new passages for today, um, we talked about the, the living sacrifice aspect of verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is not really a word that we use that much in modern culture. Uh, many Christians just feel that the whole idea of sacrifice has passed away with with the Old Covenant. Um, and many Christians don't even see sacrifice as a part of their faith anymore. So, in fact, there are many Christian traditions today that emphasize health and wealth. You know, if you really believe in Jesus, then you're not going to be suffering. You're not going to have any worries. Uh, if you got problems in your life, it means you got lack of faith. I mean, we hear that all over the time, and and it's it sells. <laughs> it brings in big bucks, mm-hmm. you know, when you're selling that kind of gospel. But it, right. you know, behind the thinking of Paul, you cannot escape the fact that when he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, we know that consistently in the theology of Paul is the, is the necessary aspect that being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ requires suffering. And that suffering is a part of that sacrifice. And just, uh, you know, three key quick verses, Ken, and then I'll let you reflect on it. Earlier in Romans, Paul said in Romans 8, 117, that uh, when we cry, Abba, Father, you know, as we talked about here a little bit ago, uh, he's our father. Mm-hmm. It is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's that emphasis. In, and then in Colossians, the, the passage, which I didn't know how to interpret back when I was a Presbyterian pastor, 124, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. And there Paul connects connects the sacrifices, the sufferings of, of the members of the body as contributing to the afflictions of Christ, fulfilling uh, the, uh, the victory of Christ for the church. And then one other verse, which... Is Ken, one of those verses that I didn't recognize before when I was a Presbyterian in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now here to be mine. The importance of 
the suffering aspect of our living sacrifice. Well, yeah, and, and, and as you were talking there and, and reading those verses out loud, it it reminded me of another one that really focuses this idea. And this is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, where Paul says, become imitators of God as beloved children. Now, that's the that's what St. Cyprian says the Lord's prayers for, is so that we might become imitators of God as his beloved children. And he says, walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, notice this language as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet savor, for a sweet smelling odor. In other words, he's using the, he's speaking about the Old Testament when the fire of sacrifice on the altar in the tabernacle in the temple would rise up, as it were, into the nostrils of God and have a sweet savor about it. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced in life a time when we walk into a, a house or into a restaurant and suddenly there's this this extremely attractive odor in the air from something that's good that is cooking. And it pleases us, well, in a much greater and much deeper and more significant way. God's heart is pleased by us offering our lives as an offering and a sacrifice in the same way that his son did. Because in offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, we are becoming like his son. And remember, in the text that you read there in in, uh, Romans, uh, that in Romans chapter 8, that's what Paul says is the purpose of all of this, so that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. So here what we have in, in Romans chapter 12, in our text for today, is implied that this sacrifice, this living sacrifice, is a constant process of transformation into the image of Christ, which involves us, as it were, putting ourselves upon the altar of God every day. And that's one of the beautiful things about our, our Mass, is the ma- the purpose of the Mass is not only to have Christ's sacrifice there, but for us to place our lives on that same altar with His. All right, Ken, excellent. And- When he says good, acceptable, perfect, I can't help but think that in the back of his mind is the very words of our Christ that says that we are to be as perfect as our Heavenly Father. The words of Christ are feeding Paul. Let's come back in a minute. We'll pick up with verse 3. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell. We're joining you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And uh, uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you at CH Network. Um, before we go on to verse 3, I know that we need to move, but I, it just struck me that, I, you know, this, the idea of do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. From a practical standpoint, what does that mean? And, uh, you know, living out the Sermon on the Mount is his instructions. There's tons of that. But here we are in the 21st century. You know, for example, what does that mean? And I, I really do believe that, especially in our day and age, it exa- means examining our lives in this soup that we live in, in, in America, for example, if you're listening to us here, that an economic soup uh, of priorities, pressures, uh, voices, influences, trying to define what our lives are to be about, uh, what's to fill our lives, what's to be important in our lives, uh, important in the lives of our kids that you know define often what a person's life from the time they're born to the time they die. And often in America, it's always in economic terms, whether you've been successful whether you've made uh, a difference with your life. It's often seen in terms of economic terms, but almost every New Testament book following the lead of our Lord Jesus says that these economic values are not to be the measure of our lives. Uh, Otherwise, if those are the measure, then it's only the rich people that are of value and the poor are failures. It's only the rich people that are following the will of God, and the poor people are not having an active involvement in the, the uh, trajectory of the world. When in fact, the economic values pass away uh, once we leave this world into the kingdom. And, and a good place to see that is, and Ken, you mentioned this during the break, is First Timothy 6, where uh, Paul says, again, it's Paul speaking, and he, now he's instructing his young bishop on how that young bishop is to guide his people. Paul says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money 
is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. I mean, Ken, that is exactly descriptive of the culture that we find ourselves lost in today. Well, what our culture does, I'm afraid, is it really appeals to this fallen nature of ours in its des- in, in in stimulating our desires uh, to own and to possess things and to make the 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 uh, incredible but but deadly mistake of thinking that the more we possess the happier we will be mm-hmm. and you know that's the biggest lie that the devil can ever give us whether it doesn't mean just money but it means it means things it means people i mean if we think we can own them or possess them then then this will make us happy if i just had this or just had that and uh, paul here is reminding us that that that's that's a demonic lie because having more of material things will not make us happier because happiness comes from uh, from within so uh what i think the scripture calls us to over and over again is to live simplicity. And it's funny because I just read a manuscript that's coming out, a book that's coming out, uh, I think in the fall, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, it's a great book. It's it's called Living from Our Land. And it's by a man who has searched out these questions for some time. And he is giving some very practical advice about how to live simply and yet happily as a child of God, um, so I hope that our liter- I hope that our uh, our listeners will keep their eye open for that book. It's called "Living from Our Land" by Amanda. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Marcus Grodi. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I paid you for that advertisement, but uh, no, thank, you. thank you, my friend. But yeah. I, 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 really, no, that, that... I really struggled with this very issue in that book. Uh, as I'm approaching, I'm in my 60s and I've got my retirement. If I ever retire, I'll never retire. But, you know, as I look to the future, how will I take care of my family? Yeah. What kind of a heritage do I leave for my children to follow? Uh, what kind right. of a model has my life been? And how do we live out what Christ calls us? And it's really all about how do you live out Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. How do we do that? And that's so important. And we, we live in a, a world just like Paul and the New Testament writers were living in where the, the teachings of Christ were already being twisted by the very voice you were talking about, Ken, into uh, new values about what it means to be a Christian. And already, even now 2,000 years later, we're still trying to live out the simplicity. Now, Verse 3 through 8 that follow this are an extension of what he's talked about in verses 1 and 2. If the members of the body of Christ, in obedience to Jesus Christ, following the guidance of Paul and the other New Testament writers, um, by grace, if their mind is transformed or in the process of being, it's a lifelong process, so that our lives become a living witness, a sacrifice. You know, if the word witness means martyr. And so if our lives are a living witness, a living martyr, that's like being same thing as saying a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. Um, if that's what we're doing, 
It is not an individual sacrifice, but a sacrifice that we do together with the body. And verses 3 through 5 of Romans 12 uh, describe life in the body of Christ. And then verses 6 through 8 are essentially an application of this principle of the mystical body, how we live out the gifts one with another. Ken, if you would, why don't you go ahead and read these verses and then start our reflection on it. Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace of given to me, I bid every one of among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we too, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Well, this this is where Paul is um, is leading us right into the practical effects of what it means to be a Christian in the church. And I think what's implied here very strongly is that our identity as Christians is not just that we're united to Jesus Christ, for example, through our baptism, through faith, but that we're also, our part of our identity is that we're members of the church of Jesus Christ. And as I was reflecting upon it <clears throat> over the last couple of years and writing my own personal story of my conversion to the Catholic Church, it, may, it, it came back to me again. I thought, you know, from a very early age, even as a Presbyterian, my mother and my father, especially my mother, um, taught me that part of my identity as a Christian was to be a part of the church. It wasn't just to say, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, but that immediately made me a part of the church. This is what Paul is talking about here in verses uh, 3 through 8. He's talking about the mystical body. In verses 3 through 5, he's laying, as it were, the theological foundation of that. Because he says in verse 5 that we are one body, even though we're, mem even though we're individually members of that body, we're still, the many different people are still one body. And that lays the foundation for the fact that when he goes to talk about the specific kinds of services or ministries or gifts or charisms in verses 6 through 8, it's all for the purpose of the building up of the church. You know, Ken, I, I know the, if any of you listening to the program over the last whatever weeks or months and have heard the little commercials in the middle, have heard the advertisement for my little book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? And it's just a little book, but it addresses the issue that's in verse 5. And that is that there's a con the church is a continuity of the Old Testament people of God. And nothing in the teachings of Jesus anywhere 
will you find that Jesus all of a sudden abruptly breaks the church from the Old Testament people of God as if, whereas in the Old Testament, to be close to God, you had to be a child of Abraham, of the covenant, uh, of the sign of the covenant, under the rituals and the priesthood and the atonement. All of that was the Old Testament family of God. And if you wanted to be right with God, you had to be a part of that. Nowhere in the, in, in the teachings of Christ do we ever see him say, no, that's all past. Now it's just individual peoples, people who have faith in me. And if you get together, I'm in your presence, as he says in Matthew 18. Any two of you gathered, there's a church. Well, is that what he meant? Uh, or do we see that the continuity of everything in the Old Testament flows directly, though transformed, into the church? You have the covenant, the new covenant. You have the sign of the, of the new covenant, which is baptism. You have priesthood. You have the atonement. You have ritual. You have all of the, the, the continuity. Uh, and in the same way that the Old Testament speaks to individuals who are part of the family of God, the family of Abraham, in the New Testament, it's about being an individual believer in Jesus Christ as a part of, members of, the body of Christ. That's essential. That was the intended continuity. That's the unity which our Lord Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. And sadly, it's the unity which as Christians we've broken over the centuries. And especially today, to me, the, the most rampant uh, heresy today, which is the biggest problem, is this idea of individualism. All that you need mm -hmm. is Jesus and that a church is unnecessary. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. It doesn't even matter if you belong to a church or not as long as you got Jesus. And you don't find that in the teaching of the New Testament. Well, when you uh, speak about that, it reminds me of really two things. I, and you were talking earlier about um, being practical and, and giving some practical examples. I was just talking to uh, one of the women who's a member of our, our parish uh, not long ago, and she was telling me how she was struggling with um, various kinds of uh, leaders in the church. Actually, she was a member of another parish in our town, and she was saying that she really missed her old pastor. And, and so she was feeling well, a little bit, you might say, uh, lost, lost about it all. And so I was just trying to encourage her, um, really along the lines of what you're saying here, Marcus, and that is we all go through times of difficulty in struggling with the church, but the answer is not to abandon the church, either in fact or in our in our hearts, but to remember what Paul is saying here, that we're still all members of the mystical body. And if we're going through emotional difficulties with regard to the church or some of its leaders, be it a bishop or a priest or whatever, that doesn't mean we're any less members of the church. And so we need to ask ourselves, okay, Lord, yes, I'm struggling with this bishop or that priest or losing our pastor or something like that. But you've still made me a member of this mystical body. You've made me, in fact, a member of the, the ecclesial body, the real church, my parish, my diocese. How can I come back and, and live my life in the context of that church and serving the church? And Paul is giving us part of the answer here. 
as he begins verse 6, he talks about that we have different charisms that are given to us according to the grace of God. Back in verse uh, 3, Ken, uh, before we get into 6, leading up to 6, which is the foundation for 6, um, one of the ways that I've always loved studying Scripture is to ask well, why did Paul put that verse, that, that word in there? He didn't have to add that word, yeah. you know. And That's a good verse question. 3, he could have easily began, for I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly. He could have begun that way. But he added a phrase. And the phrase is, for by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you. Well, why was it important for Paul to add that little phrase, by the grace given to me? And it seems to me that that phrase, by the grace given to me, connects with verse 6 when he says, having gifts that differ according to grace given to us. In other words, the responsibilities that we have within the body, uh, the, the, the abilities we've been given to use for the good of the body, uh, the authority that we might have within the body of Christ— have been given to us, and we need to discern that. And it's not up to us individually to decide, this is what I want to do. That's good to have a goal. But in the end, it's the church, as represented here by Paul, by the grace given him, to delineate how the people within the church under him are to use their gifts. Uh, Paul does that to Timothy when he says, remember the hands that were laid on you and the gifts you received. We see that in First Timothy. Uh, there's a number of places where we recognize uh, that the graces given to us are to empower us, but it's the church uh, that, uh, that recognizes these gifts. And, and Ken, earlier in Romans, just a couple chapters back, when he talks about how are people going to become parts of this body of Christ? How are people going to learn about Jesus Christ, are going to surrender their life to Christ, are going to become living sacrifices? How are they going to do that? Well, it says back in Romans 10 that the way this happens is how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And then he says in verse 15, and how can men preach unless they are sent? And that sent carries with it that word sent, which is the foundation to the word apostle, those who are sent, carries with it this understanding of the authority within the church that grace has established for how we can live together and use our gifts as one united working body, uh, recognizing the structure that Christ established in his church. Well, and I think the Greek uh, language and text in Romans 12 backs up very firmly what you're saying, because when he says in verse 3, uh, I say through the grace that was given to me, the word grace, charis in Greek, is the word that derives from that is the word charisma. You can tell how they're related, charis and charisma. Charis means grace and charisma means a gift. So that the gifts that are spoken of in verse 6 are precisely 
gifts of grace that come from the grace that's given. In verse 3, Paul talks about the grace that was given to him. But in verse 6, he's talking about the grace that's given to each one of us, manifested with different kinds of work, different kinds of services and ministries and teaching and so forth. But this, it's as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's different forms, but it's the same God that's giving it all. In other words, it's the same grace that we're receiving from God. I, I love it, Ken, that before he gets to the, the enumeration of the gifts in verse 6, 7, and 8, of course, we have those in 1 Corinthians 12, and we also see them in Ephesians 4, you know, apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists, all those in Ephesians 4. But before he gets to that, he deals in verse 3 with the most important thing to always remember is that the danger is that when any one of us recognizes that by God's mercy we've been given certain abilities, or maybe God has opened doors for us into leadership, or has allowed us to have the privilege of responsibilities within the body of Christ, that the devil is always whispering in our ear, wow, God gave you those gifts because you deserve them, because you're good. you know. (laughs) And so the first thing he says in verse 3 is, listen, don't you dare think of yourself higher than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Sober judgment gets back to our call to be grateful to God, uh, to be, as, as John the Baptist says, he must increase, why I must decrease. It's this following of our Lord, uh, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, uh, you know, being detached from ourselves. This is the, the necessary first step to being able to appreciate and to use the gifts we've been given by grace. And I think at the very end of verse 3, there's that—it could be subject, I think, to misunderstanding. But in light of what you're saying, when he says that to each is given—God has measured out this this grace in the measure—by measure of faith, we, we may be tempted to think, oh, that means that if I believe more, if I have a greater measure of faith, then I'll get more gifts from God— which seems to be what underlies the um, the health and wealth gospel that we hear so much about on the airwaves today in America. But, I, but I'm not sure that's what Paul is saying, because if you look at verse 3 again, it's the it's translated to think with sober judgment. And this actually rhymes in Greek. Uh, it's hard to bring it over in English, but what he's saying is phronein ace to sophronein. He's saying think about in a way that thinks wisely and what is that with why what is that way of is that the faith that's given to us is a gift of grace in other words we don't even earn the faith faith is the grace that god gives us to be able to respond to his calling of us so when we respond to god it's because he's already prepared our hearts to respond to him. Now we can deny that, of course. We can turn away from that. But that's <clears throat> but that's our part. God's part is that he gives us the grace to believe and to live out what those gifts are that he gives us. And as he gives us those gifts, he expects us to use them as good stewards, not as possessing them for our own benefit, 
but for the benefit of others. And I think that's what Paul means when he says, think with sober judgment. He means think in norm terms of the way God wants you to use those gifts that he's given you in a state of humility and obedience. Yeah, sadly, when you look at the history of the church, probably he's addressing here the biggest problem that's caused a problem throughout the church, and that's envy and ego and power and all that. Ken, we're, yeah. we're, uh, we're running down to the end. Uh, I did want you to address the significance of, in verse 6, where all the other 6, 7, and 8, he'd give a gift. He teaches te- in the teaching, exhort, exhort, contribute, contribute, and all that. But in, in, in the first one, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, what's the significance to the phrase, in proportion to? Why did he feel the need to add that in there? Well, I really have to, I guess... Um disagree a little bit with that translation that we're using. I'm glad you're using this as the RSV, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good translation in general, but there, there do come points at which we have to say, maybe that's not the best translation. And, and the reason I say that is it says, in proportion to our faith. And the Greek word, the Greek phrase here is katatein analogion tes Pistos. In other words, and there the Greek word, we get the word analogy from Greek. It's analogy or analogion. And this is um, this phrase, the analogy of faith, has been used for, for centuries within the history of the church to mean the inner cohesion of all the truths that have been revealed to us. And so, for example, in our catechism, in the present day catechism of the Catholic Church, in verse, uh, excuse me, in paragraph 114, section 3, it says this, Be attentive to the analogy of faith. That's the phrase that Paul is using here. By the analogy of faith, we mean the coherence of the truths of faith among themselves and within the whole plan of revelation. Paul here is probably not saying, when he says in the analogy of faith, He's not saying something about uh, how we exercise faith, but he means prophecy and teaching that agrees with the faith that has already been given. Yeah, like when he says in Second First uh, Thessalonians, uh, no, Second Thessalonians two fifteen, to stand firm on the tradition. In other words, all these different voices rising of interpretation have to be uh, guided by and measured by, proved by, tested by the tradition handed on from our Lord to the apostles and to their successors. Ken, let's pick up right there next week when we look at this passage and we'll move on to the rest of chapter 12. Ken, thank you for joining us today. And all of you, thank you for joining us with Deep in Scripture. Go to deepinscripture.com. And if you would, send us an email to let us know about how this program is helping you grow deeper in our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.